Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 10th, 2020, and my guest is philosopher and author Zena Hitz of St. John's College. She is the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Zena, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks so much, Russ. It's great to be here. You say real learning is hidden learning. What does that mean? Real learning is hidden in a couple of senses. One of the main ways it's hidden is it's... Uh, it's an inner life. It's something one does in a primary way, not exclusively, but primarily with oneself. Uh, it's also hidden in that uh, I, I want to try to, in my book, separate the good of learning from uh, its institutional accretions. Uh, so learning is, for many of us, uh, a mode of achievement, a mode of social advancement, a mode of arcane status markings, uh, moving our way up and down this, uh, you know, academics are extremely competitive people, so it's a, it's a mode of competition. And uh, it's a way, learning can be a way to uh, accrue money or power. Um, I want to try to recover it as something uh, more universal, more widely spread, something that belongs to everyone, and something which whose value doesn't depend on its results, its visible results, either in uh, money, power, prestige, or even um, tangible societal benefits of the kind that you might expect. So I, I, I want to emphasize the hiddenness to uh, to get to the real core value of learning for individual human beings. So I think most people associate the word learning in a way that's – or think of it in a, very way, a way that's very different from the way you do. I think a lot of people would say, well, learning is when I gather facts about something I don't know anything about. You know, uh, I want to learn about how to bake bread. I want to learn about the history of the Greeks. You mean something quite specific and quite different, I think, than the everyday usage of the term. So let's start – let's continue by elaborating on – that phrase, learning, that's, that word, learning? Uh, that's a great question. I think learning can begin with that kind of fact accrual impulse. It certainly began that way for me as a child. I uh, loved facts about uh, especially sea creatures, whales, penguins. Uh, I can still recite to you some facts about them. They stuck in my memory all these years. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't want to condemn fact accumulation. I think it's can be it's something human and good. But learning is is something uh, more profound than that. It's first of all open-ended inquiry. So it's something which uh, there may not be a fixed answer or you may continually have to adjust the answer that you find. Uh, and I think the kind of learning I'm especially focused on, especially interesting in is is learning that involves an inquiry into what I call fundamental questions questions about the nature of human life, questions about the nature of the universe, 
that covers traditional modes of learning, mathematics and science and literature and philosophy and history. Uh, but it's it's an attempt to get down to what's really basic about them and and what what feels like something worthy of of devoting one's life to. So people like me have devoted their lives to learning and passing it on to others. Uh, why would that? Why would accumulating facts and passing on facts to others uh, be a worthy way of living? It doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But I, when I think of myself as asking fundamental questions and developing habits uh, and, and modes of approaching these things uh, and passing that on, this human practice of inquiry onto others, then my life starts to make a little more sense. Yeah, I, I still know Ty Cobb's lifetime batting average is 367. <laughs> I later found out that's a rounded number. It's actually 366. Point, 0.366 and some more, some more digits, but I've rounded it up very inaccurately to three, imprecisely to 367. And listeners, I know, will get a kick out of that. You, you referenced the phrase above the uh, oracle at Delphi, know thyself. So one way I think people think about learning is I need to understand myself. This could be the uh, role of psychotherapy. It could be uh, religion can play a role in self-knowledge, uh, a mindfulness practice. These are ways that we, quote, get to know ourselves. But you point out that that's not what the Delphi Oracle meant by know thyself. What, what did the Greeks mean by know thyself? I think uh – I think that the Delphic Oracle probably meant something like, know your place. Know that you are a human being and not a god. Know that you are finite. So the kind of self-knowledge that uh, you find, for instance, I think especially in Plato and, and in Aristotle, as well as uh, in, uh, in the plays and other Greek literature, it's, it's knowledge, self-knowledge is knowledge of what kind of thing a human being is. And human beings are prone to illusions about themselves, great illusions. So they can imagine that they're immortal. They can imagine that they are omnipotent. They can imagine that their plans will somehow magically bring reality into, into accordance with them. Uh, and it's a crucial part of our, um, our human happiness, our human uh, sanity to uh, know our limitations. <clears throat> Not in the sense of uh, uh, not ever looking up to any, not ever aspiring to anything, but but knowing that one's aspirations uh, are going to be limited both in their scope and in their ability to be implemented. So I think that's a kind of crucial part of inquiry, especially inquiry into the humanities learning, is to come to know our limits. And that's not, uh, of course, it applies to personal self-knowledge. We all personally with our self-help books or whatever it is that we're using or our therapy, uh, we all personally strive to see our own limitations, our own shortcomings, our own traps and avoid them. But uh, the great works of literature and great works of philosophy and history are incredible tools for us to think about, not just us personally in our personal histories, but what, what is it that human beings have been continually struggled with uh, in different times and places, and uh, it's enormously helpful to have this source of reflection. It seems to me there's two threads here of, of, of knowledge or learning. One is what we all have in common, that human limitation, that we're not gods, that 
that we we're human, we're mortal, we're finite. Um, you know, I'm really drawn to the uh, Anne Lamott description of God's God's name. God's name, she says, is not me. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's God's name, not me. I am not God. I am not the center of the universe. I think being aware of that and and seeing those themes of human imperfection throughout literature and history, I think, are incredibly powerful learning experiences. At the same time, there's unique things about me, my foibles, my limits. Uh, I will never play in the NBA. Uh, I have other limits. I'll just stick with that one. Uh, That's the National Basketball Association. I am am not going to be a professional basketball player. Um, And I think about Montagna, who, Mm -hmm. you know, You'll tell me when he lived. I, th- I, I want to say 17th century, roughly. Um, he supposedly, I, I, I've only read a few of his essays, but he supposedly, his subject of study was, quote, himself. That much of his essays are an exploration of his humanity as a way to have a lens into the larger issues of, of, of human behavior generally and human limitations. What are your thoughts on those two sort of two threads of, of or streams of exploring myself and exploring hum- humanity. Well, it's interesting. It's something I've been thinking about recently and that I haven't fully worked out. So my thoughts might not be fully baked when they come out of my mouth right now. But if I think about reading Montaigne, so Montaigne says he writes about himself. Uh, he has to actually not be quite just writing about himself or you or I or all the pe- readers of the centuries would find it enormously boring, yeah. right? So one of the ways, if you if you ever read bad literature, liter- literature that you know can't can't make it out of the out of someone's basement study, it tends to be too particular. It's too narrow. It's too caught up in someone's personal experience. So uh, a critic who's writing, I love George Steiner. Um, he talks about shaping. Shape, art is shaping our experience into the, the something like the general shape of human recognition. So the general structure of human recognition. So you have to, you have to in some way communicate what's uh, shareable about your experience in order to write about it. So it's mysterious to me in a way because uh, all of these authors are different individuals, and uh, you and I are different from each other and different from each of them. But reading, reading and learning wouldn't make any sense if we weren't able to connect ourselves with them through some general features of, of humanity that we have in common. So it's, um, you can see that there's a, a real tension there. That is, if you go too far in one direction, there's no such thing as an individual, which seems wrong. Uh, but if you go too far in the other direction, you lose the ability to communicate or to learn about anything. Uh, that is, if... if um, my words only apply to myself. They're they're scarcely even words. Uh, part of what part of what language does is connect us with one another. So a lot of what my work is doing, especially what I'm trying to think about right now, is how that how that works. Um, so that because I think it's it's very possible and very common for people's particular experiences to express something universal without losing their particular character. So. I talk in my book about the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, it's uh, a wonderful book. Uh, it was popular more in previous decades. It should be as popular now as it was then or more. 
Um, it's a very, it's a story of a very particular kind of life that's different from mine, but I connect with it and I identify with Malcolm X uh, while recognizing that he's quite different from me. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know how that all works, but I, I see that it's possible to do that. And in fact, if it weren't possible, that reading and learning wouldn't make a lot of sense. Let's talk about the life of the mind. Much of your books about that. Uh, it's something that it's a life I like living. Um, <laughs> I, I like going inside. Um, I spend a lot of time in my head. We, most of us do in some form or another, but some in different ways than others. And you talk about it as a refuge from the world, which it clearly is. And my joke is that in today's times, I wish I were, I try to sometimes immerse myself in Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments of 1759. I, you know, I like that world. Truth is, I don't. I, I, I like antibiotics and lots of, lots of things in this world. But there's a tension that you explore in the book between learning for its own sake in, and, and as a refuge and having an impact. I mean, you spend your days teaching young people how to think about big ideas What's the point of that? I mean, that doesn't help you get a job on Wall Street. It's, it can lead to, uh, you know, reading books that have no, that are dry and dusty. Talk about that tension between being immersed in the world and thinking and learning and reading as a refuge. Uh, well, it's, it's, why don't I say something about the, the tension for me personally in a particular moment like this one, which is that I, I've written this book defending uh, the inwardness, the uselessness of the life of learning. <laughs> and why am I doing that? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm doing that because I want more people to recognize this activity and to live it out and to uh, uh, teach it in schools. I'm trying to rescue something, in other words, that I think is endangered. And of course, that's an attempt to make an impact. So I'm, I'm always caught in this difficulty in that I'm trying to explain the value of something while that's strictly speaking in some tension with what I'm actually <laughs> what I'm actually doing. Uh, but that said, I think that the kind of inquiry that I that I do myself, that I try to pass on to my students, something that's fundamental, that's withdrawn to some extent, necessarily I think from contemporary concerns, um, uh, whether those are political concerns or economic concerns or personal concerns, that kind of activity uh, is necessary for human beings to flourish and to be happy. And I don't mean happiness in the sense of, you know, good feels. Uh, I mean happiness in the sense of of growth, of of becoming more fully oneself, of having profound and meaningful experiences. And I think if you dedicate yourself to impact um, your life is is really diminished. Uh, you you need to have resources within yourself on which you're drawing um, and that you return to. Uh, so I'm not I'm not suggesting, as might be misunderstood by some of my work, I'm not suggesting that no one should try to act in the world or help their communities. Far from it. But in order to help our communities, we need to have uh, some kind of mode of retreat, some place where we go to to 
restore ourselves, to find new resources, to reflect, to think. And that also is a resource for us when things go wrong. I mean, we, our, our educational um, culture is so focused on achievement and success. And, you know, we have got to face the fact not everyone is going to succeed or those who succeed are going to succeed for a time and then not succeed. And that's not in anyone's control necessarily. Um, we need resources as human beings to face whatever life throws us. Uh, and that's the kind of thing I think that I'm passing on to my students. That is a set of resources that it, I think it does help people uh, uh, do better work, think creatively, take on challenges. I think all that stuff is true. Uh, so I think it does make people more successful, liberal arts education. I just also think that it, it makes people better at failing and better at enduring. And these are valuable. Uh, we shouldn't pretend they're not uh, since none of us are going to be permanently successful. And some of us may never be particularly successful. And the, those lives are also worth living and they're, they're worth um, nurturing and they're worth, they have things in them that are, I mean, not just worthwhile, but sort of unconditionally worthwhile for the dignity beyond price. Uh, so that, that's the kind of thing I'm trying to recover in our, in our way of talking about education. So I like that idea a lot. Uh, it speaks to me deeply. I don't know if it speaks to many other people. So let, let, me, let me challenge you with what I think others might respond to that. Um, I, I actually, I very much think that the aspiration to explore the world of ideas, the purpose of a life, uh, why are we here, what should we do with our time here, these are things a human being should engage and grapple with. But most, a lot of people don't. They don't grapple with them. They lead very rewarding and pleasant lives. Um, and when you tell them that, I think they look at us and say, well, you, you two are in universities. It's a weird thing. There's something wrong with you. Uh, anyway, I'm out in the world. I'm doing stuff. And, and you're just reading these, these old books. Um, this whole idea of flourishing, which is, speaks deeply to me, I think a lot of people are going to go like, flourishing? I like prospering. You know, I like just making money, having a good standard of living, good vacation, fine wine, all those things. Um, so, in, in particular, you know, you're a religious Catholic. I'm a religious Jew. And I think part of our attraction, I suspect, to this ideal of, of growth of challenging ourselves, of aspiring. It really is, it, it might, I worry that it's rooted in our religious perspective. And, and for a non-religious person, they're just going like, what the heck are you talking about? What's wrong with just being happy? What, you know, what, what's wrong with feel good? You said, that's not what I'm talking about. And I think some people, many of my listeners are going, why not? What's wrong with that? So I, I think that two things are going on. And of course, I'm speculating. Uh, you, you, you can only really uh, write and think from your own experience in a certain way. And you, you can receive what you can from others, but you can't always fully inhabit their, their way of thinking. But I think two things are going on. One is that people are overestimating or misunderstanding the sources of their own happiness and flourishing. That is that there may be ways in which I'm describing something that they're already doing so uh, contemplation, for instance, <clears throat> which is something I 
I talk about as the uh, intellectual life is one form of contemplation. Um, and th the way that I know best, uh, the way that I love most is reading old books and thinking about fundamental questions and having conversations about them that go on for hours. But there's other forms of contemplation. There's people who love the outdoors, for instance. Why do you love the outdoors? What's lovable about it? Uh, or maybe you're a bird watcher. Or um, how many history geeks are there? You go to Gettysburg, uh, where there's a, you know, a big national museum for the battlefield. It's full of people who are not self-identified intellectuals. They're not self-identified academics. But they are after something. And they are after things which are sometimes look like accumulations of facts, but it's somehow there's a human drama that is drawing them in and that they are thinking about and they are contemplating when they do that. Uh, so also we think about um, most people get a lot of their meaning in life from their personal relationships, their family relationships, their romantic relationships, relationship with their parents and their children. Those two can be very contemplative. You, you get to know a human being and you think about who that person is and you behold who they are. And that too is a type of contemplation and involves a certain kind of contact with, with the universal. So I think those things, like things like the outdoors, things like family, which people recognize as robust sources of meaning and, and, and sources of uh, satisfaction, uh, those, I think, are really connected to things I'm talking about in ways that aren't always acknowledged. That's one thing to say. The other is that uh, there's a lot of people who find pursuing success, a lot, a lot of people who find it exciting in a way, thrilling for a while, and then they find it uh, deadening and miserable. And there's something empty. There's something missing. They can't figure out what they have I can't tell you, I used to be a person like this and I, I still know many people like this. Uh, they've got everything. And yet somehow they, they keep going to work, they keep doing things, they keep stacking up accomplishments. And there's a sense that somehow they're missing something. There's more. Um, and that can go in a variety of directions. People can go on that condition for a long time. They can go undergo one or two other kind of change or, or modification or breakdown or all kinds of things. But my thought is that part of what they're missing, what they're not connecting with, are these more robust sources of meaning, which matter for their own sake. They don't matter because um, they look good on a CV. They don't matter because they look good on a resume. They don't matter even because they um, produce demonstrable metrics that we know indicate that people were benefited. Uh, we, even that isn't enough for us. We need more than that. So those are my two thoughts that we're both uh, happy. Our sources of happiness are not always what they, we think they are, and, and we're often unhappier than we're willing to acknowledge. And of course, there are people who pursue success, achieve it, and are perfectly happy. It's not to say that, that, that they're not. Uh, but the phenomenon you're talking about of the successful person who finds they're missing something, I think is also a real phenomenon. Um, you know, if you were speaking from a religious perspective, you'd say it's, a, it's an aspect of the soul, which is a non-scientific term, to I would say, to describe this yearning to matter uh, or connect right. to something larger than ourselves, which, right. you know, whether it's a physical or chemical thing is irrelevant. It is part of our consciousness in some form. And it's an extraordinary thing to me 
that we can't just be happy with success, uh, that, that somehow we are burdened with a couple of things, our mortality, uh, a feeling of, of emptiness that, that life maybe has no purpose. Why this should bother uh, the naked ape is a, is a, which is how we've been described as human beings uh, by Desmond Morris. I, I don't know why that's so hard for us, but it is hard for us, or at least for many of us. Any thoughts? So I, I don't know. I mean, what I would want to say is something like, we're just not cut out for success alone. We need we just need more in our lives. We need other resources, other sources of meaning. Um, but I also think that part of it, it isn't just an individual hunger for understanding. Sometimes what what uh, really unsettles a successful life, and I think was the case for me, is um, the suffering of others. So the, 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 the catastrophic suffering of others. That I think is maybe even a bit more common than the more individual existential angst it's a sense that somehow your success uh doesn't make sense given the enormity of the suffering in the world and there can be various events that might make that clear to you but that's a that's another way that i think a life of success can feel limited that is we can feel as if there's a human community in which that success does not really make sense and somehow we, many of us, feel a yearning not just to learn or to understand, but to uh, be with people who suffer, to somehow uh, acknowledge their existence in our lives in some way or other. Um, well, there's a brokenness to the world that you know, Thoreau said, that, you know, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I like the folk right. aphorism, be kind, everyone is in a battle. Um, <laughs> right. How does learning, how does the intellectual life interface with that suffering? Because most people's reaction to that suffering is one I don't particularly agree with, but it's a standard one, is to become, quote, an activist, to pursue political solutions. And you're suggesting a more inward turn to cope with that reality of the world's uh, brokenness. Defend that or modify it. There, well, part of it, you, you could see, I could come out from a couple of different directions. One is that there are certain pitfalls of activism. That is, I think they're recognizable to most people, including most activists. Uh, they, they, things activists struggle with. Uh, I mean, I come from an activist family. So activism is, par- is part of kind of the, the frame in which I live in the world, even if I uh, reject it in a lot of ways. Um, and it, Part of it is you. It can be a, a form of of selfishness, or even a form of narcissism. That is, you can tell your yeah, ironically, exactly. So you can you can feed yourself on fantasies of your saving the world, you're making the world a better place, you're connecting with the poor and the impoverished, and we see this all the time. You know, it's what's called virtue signaling or uh, grandstanding, or all of these ways in which. What I think is an honest yearning to connect with someone who suffers uh, takes kind of the shortcut out and becomes a performance. So uh, learning is, because learning is uh, at its best a form of honest inwardness, 
um, it, it can unsettle those, those fantasies, right? Because of that, that self-knowledge that we're aiming at. We're aiming at seeing our limitations. So that might happen, for instance, because we read a book about someone or see a film. You know, I, I write about Sullivan's travels in the book, which I think is a, a terrific movie about activism. Uh, you know, we, we see or hear about someone who resembles us and we recognize ourselves and then we can, we can think of a different way of being. So that's, that's part of it, I think. But the other part is that uh, maybe more fundamental is that um, learning is a way of connecting with other human beings. Uh, they're often dead people. <laughs> but even that kind of connection can help us to connect with living people. And then also we, we, off, we usually learn with uh, other human beings. Uh, and because learning is part of uh, a happy, fulfilling human life, on my argument, it's, it's something we have to bring to people. Uh, it's like health uh, care or any other provision of a good that, help, that makes people's lives better. Learning has to be um, given to people uh, through, diff- you know, through different kinds of practices and institutions and services and so on. So uh, those are, that's a variety of ways that is. So, so it can help through self-knowledge. It can help through um, the, the kinds of connections that learning builds with others. Uh, and it can also just be itself a mode of, a mode of service. Yeah, uh, I like to say, and it comes back to what you said before about flourishing. I, to me, it's just a fundamental part of being a human being. And I don't know if that right. speaks to folks generally. I, for some reason, it speaks to me. Um, <laughs> but I, again, I don't know how widely that, that touches folks. The, your discussion about the pitfalls of activism reminds me of you know, the expression, it's easy to love humanity, it's harder to love your neighbor. Um, <laughs> And in theory, learning can help you love your neighbor, which is uh, arguably perhaps the most reliable way of making the world a better place and avoiding the law of unintended consequences, the complexity of the world that you often mistakenly uh, overestimate uh, your ability to to overcome and so on. Um, let, let's talk about work. Uh, I, I want to start with a question you sort of touch tangentially in the book, which is the prestige associated with various kinds of work and um, and whether the kind of lessons you're talking about are accessible to everyday people. You know, some might react to what you're saying and say, well, that's lovely for, you know, really high IQ people, really smart people, university educated people, but most people can't really, it's not for them. They let them... You know, they need the circuses and the NFL and um, drugs and YouTube. You know, that's good enough for them. But, you know, the world you're talking about, that's for people like me, high whatever, high status folks who like to lord their knowledge over on other people and so on. And yet you argue for, I would say, one, a democratization of learning, which is a, a beautiful idea. I don't know if it's possible or true, but you, I want you to defend it. And then I want you to defend this idea that that it's a terrible thing, which I believe but I struggle with, that we should not judge people or or, or view them through the lens of their occupation. Um, you know, I think I've alluded to it before. There was a wonderful animated cartoon of the person getting on the bus at, at work, and instead of seeing the bus driver, 
the person who's driving the bus actually the bus, just a, a, an instrument to your getting to work. And the person who sits at the front desk is just a word processor, you know, head. Okay. Um, and instead of seeing people as human beings, you see them as their, as their, as how they serve us, as how, what we get out of them. And I despise that perspective. And yet I fall into it. So I want you to say why, uh, how we can avoid that and why those folks that we often look down as doing something, quote, menial, should be living the same life of learning that all of us could, in theory, uh, adopt. So uh, those are really two questions. Let me yep. try to keep them straight. And yeah, let me ahead. talk first about why, why I think that the life of learning is, I would call it, something that needs to be considered in an egalitarian light. That is, it's something that very widely valuable and the desire for which is very widely shared. And I, I think this is in a way the part of the book that's maybe most foreign to our contemporary culture because the stories um, which tell about this are all a bit old. So if you, and I've, I've tried to uncover them in order to bring things to light. And then of course, because I've written about it, now people write to me and they tell me stories of various ordinary people who in fact uh, are very learned, do tons of reading and tons of thinking and, you know, have, are otherwise, you know, custodians or garbage collectors or kinds of, do kinds of work that we would never expect someone of that kind of learning to, to practice. So, uh, a lot of it is there's a there's a lot of history which is not well enough known uh, about especially England and the U.S. but I'm sure other countries in the in the 19th and 20th centuries where uh, learning was uh, something that was the object of certain grassroots movements. So uh, in the U.S. there's these mechanics institutes. Some of them still exist. There's still one in San Francisco uh, where people work working people would get together and they wanted for themselves the fruits of the education that the ruling class had. They wanted it for themselves and they got it for themselves. So sometimes there was middle-class aid of one kind or another or enterprise, but quite a lot of it was just grassroots. And of course this coincided with the introduction of the paperback, the, the cheap books flooding the market. It coincides with uh, translating lots of foreign literature into, into English or translating English literature into other languages. So there's a huge translation movement. There's a huge uh, uh, marketing of books to ordinary people. But along with that was, was a lot of uh, self-directed learning via books. Uh, that, it seems to me, as far as I can tell from the records, it's very profound. It's very serious. Uh, these people thought thought very uh, intensely about things, as intensely as, as many, or more as many academics do. So that, that, the history tells me that, as history always does, right, that things could be different. Uh, that we shouldn't take somehow the, the fact that right now this type of learning is relatively rare, even frankly among uh, what we call educated people, uh, so I was talking actually just the other night, my, you know, my, my father, who's a, is a smart person, has a BA, was a teacher, but not an academic of any kind. I remember him telling me when, when I was a child that his favorite book was Kafka's The Castle. Now, and I try to think about how many, 
how many 35 year olds now, if you ask them what their favorite book is, would they say Kafka's The Castle? I don't think it would be that many, but I think in that generation, it was pretty common because they went to college. They went to college and they, um, uh, they read books like that and they, they learned to love them. So there's, things could be different. Uh, and I also keep hearing stories. I get them in emails. I get them in various ways, personal relations. People who come from working class backgrounds, whose parents or relatives or grandparents were people who read, people who thought, and they don't leave records because it's not their profession, but it's, it's more common than we think. And I wanted in my work to honor um, these people and their work and to make sure that there are resources for, for everyone to pursue the kind of learning that interests them. Uh, that's the first question. <laughs> Should I go on to the second question? Yeah, but I just want to say that you remind yeah. me a little bit of um, King Canute, who was uh, stood <laughs> in the sea and was trying to order it to, to stop the tide. Uh, <laughs> ineffectively was the point of the story that even the greatest king can't stop the tide. Um, or are you swimming against the tide? Uh, of course... I love that expression. Only a only a dead salmon swims with the tide. But you're, you're going upstream, baby. I mean, you're you're arguing for books at a time when the visual is overwhelming. The you know, again, YouTube is an enormous, uh, and things like it or in screens in general are, are dominating what used to be called uh, what we would usually call learning. Not that you can't learn from YouTube. You can or podcasts, uh, which is an audio. Another. Form that some might call a lazy person's way of learning, but of course people are learning while they're walking, driving their car, doing things that they would struggle to read a book, although people do read books while walking. I've seen it, done it. But aren't you kind of a, is this kind of a quixotic um, quest you're on, Sina? You know, I, I don't know, to be honest, because, uh, partly because, and it, this may be a skewed perspective, because of course I write about this, so the people who are, who, who, who agree are going to be in touch with me. They're going to read my work and they're going to tell me that they agree with me. Uh, so you can create your own bubble just yeah. by writing a book. Um, so part of it is that, but part of it is also that there's very widespread discontent with the way things are. There's uh, widespread worries about the, the role that the visual and the technologies had. And I, I honestly, it's, it's, it's a cliche. It's in fact, it's such a cliche. It's such an obvious truth that to say it seems pointless, but it makes people dumber to be exclusively visual and not to read. Uh, it, it, it narrows and flattens their thinking. Uh, and that's true whether they're um, wealthy and successful and have degrees or whether they're, uh, they work in something, something service-related. So I, I, I think that's truthfully very clear and becomes clearer the more, the harder you look at at a practice and the history of it. Uh, so I, I mean, that is a, in, a, in a funny way, in tension with what I'm saying, I don't, you know, I don't normally say things like that, but I do think it's true. I think this, the, the technology that we're using is, um, is not helping us to think more clearly, more creatively, uh, um, more ambitiously. It's good for all kinds of things. It's very useful in all kinds of ways, but it, it does, if you, if that's how you spend your time, your mind is not being exercised in the way that it would be if you read. So I, I think that that 
is in our DNA, so to speak, because reading is not that long ago uh, a big part of our lives. And uh, someone like me grew up with it. I'm not that old. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's still present for us and there to be revived. It's in our cultural DNA. You know, I grew up in a house right. full of books and my dad was an incredible reader and I aspired to be like my dad. Um, and so I became a reader, but my brother and sister, not so much, which is just interesting in and of itself. But I think what's in our DNA, our actual DNA, is uh, storytelling. And uh-huh. storytelling is, we're off on a tangent here. We'll come back to that second question in a second. I mean, stories are told in all kinds of ways. They're told in books. They're told in audio form, the shadow, for example. Uh, and now they're increasingly told through visual, in visual ways. Uh, they the, the advent of the miniseries on Netflix or Amazon Prime is an extraordinary, I think, moment in human storytelling. We're uh, talk about a full-length feature. I mean, just an amazing ability to pull out character and 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 dilemmas and 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 philosophize to to a large degree. So I think there's something. I think as human beings, we like all those things. I, I would make a distinction. All those different media. I would make a distinction, though, as you do between what I would call surface distraction and more immersive uh, right. storytelling. So you can react to that if you want. No, no, I, I think that's right. And I, I didn't mean to speak into sweeping away. So I, I think books are very important. I also think that, that film and uh, other visual media and painting, there's all kinds of visual media that can be extremely rich um, also. So I, I didn't mean to be, but it was the... Just what you said, I think, probably better than I could and more clearly, that there is this culture of spectacle, this culture of superficiality that uh, is neither the best of the visual uh, nor the best of the of the of best use of language. Um, I'm going to come back to spectacle because it's a big part of your book. But let, let's go to the second question, which was uh, prestige in our society is often uh, occupational slash educational. Right. Um, I hate that. Uh, I rebel against it, even though I have a lot of that in me. I'm I'm an intellectual snob, and I'm not proud of it. I'm ashamed of it. I love that I know what the G in P.G. Woodhouse stands for, and um, (laughs) Grenville. Uh, But talk about this issue of how we might humanize ourselves through learning to be more appreciative of people who are not like us educationally. And it goes in both directions, of course. People... Uh, without education, look down on people with education and vice versa. Just they have a different story to tell. Well, uh, so I think I have two two thoughts about that. One thought is that uh, there's nothing like trying to have an actual relationship with someone from a different social class, a friendship, a working relationship, um, a uh, whatever it can be. And that in, in our current climate takes a lot of effort. I think I think we live in uh, socially pretty well-contained units, and it's hard to make those connections. I think if if you have the opportunity, or if you you can think creatively about how to do that, uh, and we and I think we need uh, civic institutions which build that, build connections between social classes, build what used to be called solidarity between the classes, so that there's some notion of some common community that we all are part of. Um, it's part of what I think is helpful, which I remind myself of and which has helped me a lot, is 
to think or reflect on how really unconnected prestige is to social value. So um, now there's this uh, book that I really like by uh, David Graeber, the sociologist who just just recently died, um, called BS Jobs. Uh, and um, it's about high prestige, high paid jobs, which are actually pointless. <laughs> and then you think about all the jobs that are that are really looked down on, you know, cleaning, uh, custodial work, garbage collecting, food service. Those are essential. Uh, we couldn't, our, our communities couldn't function without these or home health care aids. It's a very low paid job. But uh, who doesn't, I mean, a home health care, that's essential work. So there's a funny way in which our, our prestige ladder is actually inverted. And the people that are doing stuff that's essential are looked down on. And people who are doing things which are pointless, like a variety, I mean, a lot of con the consulting world, I think, is a bit like this. Um, you know, a lot of it is is rubber stamping stuff that people are already doing or disrupting something that's working or variety. I mean, we all have our horror stories of stuff like this. Um, but there's also just people who have uh, jobs that don't make sense. And uh, they're not low prestige jobs. They're, used, they're often high prestige jobs. So I think reflecting a bit on uh, what people actually do and what value it actually brings real human beings is very wholesome in this respect. Uh, and it, it clarifies sort of the, the silliness of the ladder of prestige. Uh, so I, I, that's, that's one of the things I try to do to, to keep myself on track in this way. Let me speculate about that for a second. I hadn't thought about this. Some of the challenges of these cultural, social differences are our inability to, to, con to converse with each other effectively. Um, so if you tell me uh, that you teach philosophy at St. John's, I, I know exactly what to say next. And that is, oh, really? What, what's your, you know, what do you teach? And who are your favorite philosophers? And, and what's your favorite dialogue of Plato? Even if I don't know Plato's dialogues, which I don't, but I hope to before I go. Uh, <laughs> even if I don't, uh, I have a thousand things to ask you. And you're a reader. I know that already. So I can say, who's your favorite novelist? And, and you can suggest books that I haven't read and I can show off and show you that I do know what the GMPG Woodhouse stands for and then blah, blah, blah. So it's easy for me to talk to you. It's harder for me to talk to the people that you mentioned before. You know, when my, when my father was was dying, he had a home aid with us uh, to help us. And I didn't know he was dying. We, we thought he might make it, but it was a very powerful time. And at one point, um, she put some opera on her phone. It happens to be a very snooty type of music, which is interesting in itself. But my father responded to that, even though he couldn't talk at the time. And she responded to it. And of course, I responded to it. And we had, because I have to like opera. And so I had a connection with her that I otherwise wouldn't have had. Uh, it was a very powerful human moment. And I think I would struggle to do that with some of the people that we're talking about the garbage collector who I don't get to talk to except to wave and thank him when I can. Um, and to not honk at him when he blocks the street, which I think is really <laughs> important uh, to be patient. Uh, and he's hurrying already. 
And if he weren't, I'd be okay. Um, but I think the, the ability to have a human connection with someone whose day-to-day life is quite different from yours is not easy for us. And I don't think we have much practice at it. And maybe what you're saying is, is that that's an enterprise worth cultivating. It's definitely worth cultivating. And I think part of it is just uh, lack of um, unifying activities, institutions, which could create common ground about which we could talk, right? I mean, we'd get, we don't even have the same television in common anymore, right? right. So it's so there's a real loss of common endeavor. And of course, if, if you're religious, it's one thing. Religion should be a way of connecting with people of different walks of life. But are you know not everyone's religious, and then uh, even the churches can be divided by class. Uh, so um, it's it's it, part of it is a kind of community endeavor. That is, we need to be tr- trying to think about ways of connecting people with one another based on some common good, whether it's music or art or uh, libraries or. Um, uh, sports is actually a great unifier. I think, yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm not a huge sports person. I, I, I try to because I, I'm trying to connect with my family members uh, <laughs> with whom they are. This is the only route of communication. But I, so there's, there's you, it's the common culture about which one has to, to, to get to. The other thing I think, but before, before we move on from that, the other reason why I think it's difficult, and your example of the home health aid with your father is a perfect example, that things there are things which you can connect with any human being about, but their vulnerabilities, their tender things. You know, everyone loses their parents. You know, a lot of people have children. Um, a lot of people have, uh, so it's, these are, everyone confronts death and illness, and these are difficult things for us to talk to strangers about or to connect with strangers about. And, uh, you know, one classic way that one does that is, of course, volunteering in hospitals or places like that or hospices um, where, you know, you, this is just what you're there to do is to connect with people in some way on, on, on topics which you you have to share in common, even though you you can't, it's 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 not a casual it's not it's not safe and friendly like oh who's my favorite philosopher who's your favorite philosopher who's a novelist you know oh who do you know such and such that's kind of uh, that's kind of safe ways of filling the airways that make us feel good about ourselves but there, it's not really connecting with another human being on common ground and that's always hard it always involves exposing oneself taking a risk being vulnerable and none of us ever like to do that I mean it always takes practice and and it's hard and uh, we resist it I like your point which you alluded to it in our conversation that that People without formal education are awfully deeply educated about something that they have devoted time and effort to learning about. Um, I think that's a, another venue for connection that that um, that is. It's not the problem is it doesn't naturally tie into occupation. So you have to draw someone out to find out that they love birding or Civil War, you know. Uh, uh, costume or whatever it is, and I, I, um, I like to think we're all passionate about some things. Some of us are passionate about a lot of things. Uh, 
some serially, some all at the same time. Uh, people have different personalities about these kind of hobbies and, and things. But um, part of, I think, one of the reasons it's worth learning and cultivating a love of learning so that you can have such parts of the human experience and not just be floating through life. Well, it is, I think, the kind of learning that I care about, that I'm interested, that I'm promoting, it is, in a way, a kind of solution to the dilemma we were just talking about, about how you yeah. how you connect with people who are very different from you in a way that's profound, but that isn't so so difficult and so intimate that it's it, it, it you just instantly encounter tons of personal resistance and maybe it's not even appropriate um so and that you know these books are just ways of doing that because they, they they're at a certain distance from you or quite our fundamental questions are burning or all these things they're at a certain distance from you but they're very deep so you can you can connect with someone on a pretty fundamental level that way uh, I think the one the one thing that I mean that's just implicit in what we've been saying, but I, it's worth bringing out. I mean, if you if you want to connect with someone from a different social class, you need a third topic uh, to unite you. This is how human bonding, how human community works. Is you you unite around some third thing. If you just if you just say, "Hey, look, garbage collector, I'm a I'm a middle class professor, but I really want to connect with you as a human being." If I were him, I would run uh, yeah, fast oh, as I sure. could. So, so uh, you know, it's it's we need to be focused on uh, some third thing that we have in common. That's that's kind of the 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 glue of of human community. I think that's one. That's an important one. But there's one other one I want to defend, which is just listening. And I think listening is hard. It's not our strong suit. We like to talk. Um, so when I say to my uh, cleaning person, how are you, there's a different way to take that question and her response than another, another way. And, and I, you know, I, I love this. I've talked about it many times on the program, Marina Abramovich's uh, The Artist is Present documentary where there's no talking. She just sat across from a, a stranger for hours every day. Different strangers cycled through the Museum of um, Modern Art, if I remember correctly. And um, people cried sitting across from her. She cried sometimes without, without a common topic except their humanity. And I think one way to get at that human connection that, that's very powerful when you can find it is just to be better at listening. And I, I, I'm not sure how we get there from here. Um, I, I do think it is a potential solution to our current moment in America, which is a world of no listening, just anger and yelling at the other side. Um, what are your thoughts on listening? Uh, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I, um, I'm a terrible listener myself. So I, I, it's, uh, if, I, if I were to You're really... an academic. Of course you are. Uh, if I were <laughs> to really go to bat for, go to bat for, you know, we've all got to start listening to each other, then everyone who knew me would roll their eyes. Yeah. And say like, well, why don't you start? Why don't you start at home there, Zena? You know? So I, uh, so, but I, I mean, I, of course, I mean, I, I personally have benefited from the other end, from people listening to you. It's there, it's very powerful, um, just to be listened to, and, and it's, it's something you you can see in a workplace too. Most workplaces, 
you know, there's a source of conflict and the natural thing to think is, oh, every, you know, this person wants this and this person wants this. But it's often true that you just you actually just want someone to listen to you and, and then anything can happen. Uh, but if, if you don't listen, if you don't hear the person's point of view, then you really things really get out of control. So it's, it's very powerful. I agree with that. Yeah, we're using the word listening, but we're really talking about hearing, which is to be present for someone and to be uh, – to let them know that you are not just taking in the sounds, but processing them and, and paying attention. Let's turn to spectacle. Um, first, we're going to find out whether you say Augustine or Augustine. Uh, <laughs> but you talk about that guy's uh, struggle with spectacle. And in his day, uh, there was cockfighting and there was um, gladiators, human you know, animals killing each other and humans killing each other and people watching for entertainment's sake. Uh, talk about how the A-word, Augustine or Augustine, uh, dealt with that and why it's relevant today. So I'm happy to go on the record saying that I, I really don't think it matters how you say it. And <laughs> I, I think I say it both ways myself, so sure. I don't actually I know do how it's going to come out of my mouth right now. But Augustine, oh, okay, it was Augustine. Okay, Um I, he, so for him, uh, he, I think he was interested, it's in the confessions especially that I look at, he was interested in, in what in a human being, what, what part of us, what sort of psychological capacity, what is it that gets sort of hooked on uh, the gladiators, say, or for him, he also thought the theater fell into this category. I don't know what the theater was like in his time. Uh, you can imagine there's there's different kinds of theater and just as there's different kinds of cinema. And you can imagine that some of it is more pure distraction uh, and more, and some of it is something where you're entering into some reality and thinking about it along with uh, the people who made it. Um, and it may be, it may be not a sharp divide, uh, but the fact that it's not sharp doesn't mean that I think there isn't, aren't things that are clearly in one side or the other, and of course, uh, I found Augustine's treatment of spectacle particularly interesting because uh, it strikes me as being such a good diagnosis of the internet, which he knew nothing about. Uh, you know, wh why is it that, you know, this is a, again, a cliche of Twitter, right? The, 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 the horrible rumor, you know, the, the, the shocking news gets 50,000, a million retweets and then a correction that comes out two hours later that says actually that, that's not true and that didn't really happen no one no, no one quite notices that so there's something in us that wants um to it's a, a thrill-seeking instinct it wants the way i the way i put it which is based on my interpretation of augustine is that uh it's it's you want to experience for the sake of experiencing you just want that uh, uh, you know, you just want the stimulation of your senses or your experiencing capacities. It's visceral. It's it's visceral, and you you you're not. It's distinct from using your senses or using your mind to connect with some reality. So here's another example: rubbernecking at car accidents, uh, totally irresistible, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, and totally pointless. Uh, what are you going to learn from doing this? Nothing. You always want to do it. Even if you see one, you want to see more. Um, so 
it's it's not learning the way that I mean I once I had a friend in med school who took me to see cadavers and it was learning experience you know I learned um, what 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 you know what 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 we're made of what where the parts are and what connects with what so I might have gone to look at dead bodies out of a love of a spectacle but I can also look at them out of a desire to learn and to grow and to understand something about myself or about others or about the world. So it's love of spectacles is for me, a very useful way of thinking about uh, what's distinctive about the love of learning, as opposed to a lot of things that we do, which uh, engage our senses, engage our capacities, engage our attention, but which don't really result in, in growth uh, in growth and understanding, growth and insight, what have you. So I, I think it's, for me, it was, it's been very helpful to, to th- reflect on the distinction Augustine makes and to think about how it matters for us. So if you ask me why I watch football on Sunday, which I sometimes do, even though I'm increasingly uncomfortable with it because of concussions and other things, I comfort myself saying, well, it's voluntary activity. They've chosen to do it, blah, blah, blah. But if you ask me why, you know, isn't that kind of gross? People bang it into each other. They're often getting hurt. I have a poetic way to describe it. I say, well, it's like watch a sporting event, and this will be good for you, Zena, with your family. Uh, a sporting event is like a, a drama, like a great work of art, where I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I can watch it all the time. It's, they're, they're unfolding in real time. Uh, the lines aren't written or scripted. They, they're written by the participants, and I think I'm kind of fooling myself there. I think maybe I just like the spectacle. What do you think? Well, see, I'm, I have to to honor my beloved nephew, who's a football fanatic and who plays himself. Uh, and I'm going to sound ridiculous as I do it because you can, any, any real sports fan is going to be able to tell that I'm not a natural sports fan when I talk this way. But I think that it's um, football is actually it's quite intellectual game there's strategy there's um permutations there's plays uh and that that's something which it has an intellectual component i mean it has an or an artistic even component um you you know you how you know what what what's the right play here um and uh it's also, of course, a place where a certain kind of uh, human achievement is displayed. Yep. So athletic. I tell athletic, myself that one, too. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Athletic uh, achievement is real. I mean, it's like beautiful. watching the Olympics. You, you know, you see these people who can just do these beautiful things. Now, um, there's also drama, uh, as you're saying. You know, you don't know the outcome, and there are these unexpected moments. Um, like, uh, see, I'm not going to remember their names. I remember last year, one of the big games. <laughs> uh. I know the 49ers are playing. That's all I know. Uh, that's the family team. Uh, but uh, one of them just, he got the ball through the 15 yards, even though there were people hanging. They were, yep. oh, it was the Saints. The 49ers versus the Saints. I don't remember the player. But the, Sa- the Saints were hanging onto his helmet, and he's pulling them along 15 yards, and you're just looking at it like, so... I don't know. I think, is that a spectacle? Yes. Um, is it mere, pure distraction? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know how to think about it. And I'm, I'm reluctant to, it certainly feels to me more substantive uh, than, um, 
what, uh, not watching Gladiator, um, what would be a good example? Then like say really mainlining Twitter, you know, past the point where you're learning something, you're not connecting to something, you're just watching the stuff go by. Or you're, you're watching the, you're sitting on the couch flipping the channels one after another. I've done that too. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's more substantive than that. So I, anyway, I'm not sure. Why do, we, uh, why do we need, what is inside us? You write about this some, but I, I want to hear you talk about it some more. Why do I do that? Why do I flip the channels like that? Why, why am I in search of, of stimulation, of the novel, the spectacle, the whatever you want to call it? Why can't I immerse myself as often as I'd like in a difficult text? Um, given what we talked about earlier, our human side, our yearning to, to grow and learn, why do I often find it so hard? And why is well, it increasingly I, difficult, I think, for modern people? Well, I, I think our, our, our modern technologies play on our weaknesses, the weaknesses that have always been there that someone like Augustine knew about. Um, and I think that the, the difficulty, you know, Pascal, the French philosopher Pascal put it in a way, that, the way that everyone remembers, you know, the, the hardest thing in the world is to, to sit alone in an empty room, right? So the, there's a, it's, you're of, it's avoidance, in other words. Um, there's, there's something that you don't want to do or don't want to face. And that thing could always be the same thing or it could be different things at different times. Um, but you do not want to uh, just sit and, and think about your own whether it's loneliness, whether it's uh, some difficulty that you should face but won't, uh, there's 10 trillion things that we're always, always trying to avoid. And um, that's what drives us into these things. And it's as human as anything. I mean, there's no reason to be, it's, you know, you, you can't eliminate it. Uh, there's no such thing as a, as a permanently turned uh turned the right switch person who only does substantive profound activities that's just not a human way of living so it's always a struggle between the the avoidance and then the, the you know breaking the avoidance and doing something which is more substantive and which allows you to grow but growth involves again sorry i don't mean to sound cliche but growth involves vulnerability growth involves risk and those are hard for us we do not like to do that uh, so one of the things I say in the book, which I think is true, it's kind of in between that. You can, you can, sub, you can submit more or less completely to the spectacle, which will result in something bad, uh, mental illness, uh, decline. We all know stories of this kind They're in the newspapers sometimes. Uh, you know, it ends up someplace bad. You can surrender completely to that. We can do what most of us do, including myself, which is to kind of go back and forth. Uh, you know, spend spend a spend waste an entire day on Twitter and then spend the next day reading Hegel or whatever it is. Um, but then there are also forms of discipline. There are practices that we can undertake, especially communal practices, which will make it easier. So, for instance, I teach at a great books college, right? So everyone reads the hardest books. We, no one read. There's no easy book. Uh, so all the students, all the faculty. Uh, there's no secondary literature. That, nothing's dumbed down. So. So because of we're doing this together, we can do things that you, you could just never manage to do on your own. I, you know, I'm reading uh, uh, Galileo with some students right now. Now, it's, 
it's extremely interesting. Gosh, you know, it's a wonderful book. But, you know, would I have picked it up on my own and worked my way through it? No. I'm doing it because this is one of the things we do at our college. It's part of our curriculum. I've got students to read it with. I've got colleagues to talk to about it. So, so I think there are forms of discipline which can help us to, um, to go deeper more often. Just the same way if you have a partner to go to the gym with, it's easier to keep up that discipline or, or you're dieting with someone. But I think it's also a form, you know, I like to talk about mastery, which in the, in the area of learning really isn't an option, but you strive toward it, right? Mm, that's it's, right. It's very hard to master something on your own. Um, I think about this enterprise we're in right now, EconTalk. There, there are people who, who tell me they've learned a lot from it, which I, you know, touches me, and I'm incredibly grateful to be part of it. But it's very different than when I taught in the classroom. And it's a different form of education. It's a different form of communication. The work I did in the classroom was an attempt to give my students the mastery of the tools of economics, or at least the beginnings of that. And they can't do that by just listening. They, I can't impart wisdom that they write down and then say, oh, now I know it. The essence of the economic way of thinking requires you to grapple, usually with other people, toward answers and effects and, and, and consequences that you won't see on your own. You get better at it. To do Eventually, you can do it in, to some degree on your own. It's what You can become a professor if you're, if you're lucky and get good at it, in theory. Um, but... I, this community of education that you're talking about is uh, an important, I think, piece of this conversation we've, we've only touched on a little, which is that learning with others, besides being a human experience, really opens doors to you that you can't open on your own. Well, I, I think that not only that, but what you just said reminds me of a better answer to the first question you asked me about, you know, why isn't learning just accumulating facts? And that's because accumulating facts is something passive, right? It's just, you know, someone tells you what the fact is and you're like, okay, got it. You know, you, and you can just, especially if you're a nine-year-old, you know, you can just gobble them all up until you've accumulated a massive arsenal of facts. And then you can, you know, lord it over other people, and it's enormously fun and entertaining. But what learning is really is a, it's, hu I mean, human development, it's human growth, it's becoming a different kind of person in the sense that you now have capacities and abilities that you didn't have before. There are things you can do that you weren't able to do previously, and that's like any capacity or development or growth, whether it's athletic or um, uh, artistic or vocational, uh, you know, it, you have to um, develop habits and strengths and, um, and you know, what they call virtues, forms of excellence uh, in order to do it. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I'm on a warpath about this is because I feel that our education system is becoming very focused on passivity, passive absorption, um, and we're not thinking enough about how to mentor the young uh, so that they are they are getting the capacities that we have, which seems like that's what educate the core of education is. You know, you 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 develop some skill and then you pass it on to the young. 
and uh, I, I want to be sure that the, the skills that, that I receive from my teachers uh, get passed on to the next, next generation. I, I've mentioned my son before is majoring in philosophy, and people say, what, the, what is that good for? And I say, not much, just thinking. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes they think, yeah, it's not worth very much. Uh, I mean it, of course, as a positive. How, when you think of learning, how much of it do you think of it as, it's not facts, obviously, although it needs facts, uh, but how much of it is this ability to synthesize, to connect, to, to apply things to other things, Versus the thing itself. I'll, I'll say something which might be related, and then you can come back at me. Um, I don't. I think it. It's not just that it's not passive. So learning is learning. I think learning is learning is fundamentally how to do things or how to be. You know, it's ways of being that inform ways of doing. I mean, that sounds abstract and philosophical, but uh, you 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 develop habits and abilities which enable you to do things. That involves a lot of uh, individual creativity and, and, and enterprise and independence in most cases. Now, it also involves submission to some common forms, you know, doing things you don't want to do for a while um, and, then, uh, and then stepping out on your own. But I think the way I'm talking is totally general to every kind of learning. So I, I think basketball, you know, th- there's learning how to shoot a basket. But, you know, the great basketball players have very distinctive ways of shooting a basket. And there are people who do it in ways that no one's ever done before. And the kind of learning I'm interested in is like that, too. It's, you know, it's sure it's connecting one thing to another. Uh, It's connecting Galileo with um, Newton or connecting Galileo with Euclid or connecting Galileo with the literature of the time or with Hobbes or all kinds of things like that. but it's uh, so it, that itself is a kind of habit, the habit of making connections, the habit of seeing how one thing connects to another. But it's also made up of other habits, reading carefully, um, asking questions, pursuing questions, using a book to pursue a question, having a conversation where you so learning how to use other human beings to learn and work your way through something. That's all a set of of skills in the sense I'm talking about. It. And it's, they can all be undertaken in just the way I'm saying that is they involve some submission to norms, but then you can do them in a way that's distinctive and creative. Um, and that's, that's where, you know, the varieties of human excellence come from is, is, is this kind of activity. It's, it, it happens all the time in all kinds of areas. I just, I just want to make sure it keeps happening in my particular area. Just so <laughs> books, and, books, and, books and thinking and uh, ideas. So let's, let's close with the topic of university education more generally. Uh, you're at St. John's College, which, as you point out, is a great books college. Uh, I think there's one. Oh, there's two campuses, one in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe, right? Um, where you read old books, uh, the original books, not what people have to say about the books. So you're reading Plato and Aristotle and so on and Homer. Um, You are not a professor. You are called a tutor. And in your book, you talk about the importance of one-on-one relationships with students versus this the large lecture hall where the facts or things get passed on then written down. Um, talk about the difference between a tutor and a professor, at least that kind of professor in the modern large university setting. 
Well, I think the fundamental distinction that the the founders of our experimental program in 1937 wanted was to they wanted to minimize the uh, distance between the the faculty and the students, the professors and the students. So they wanted uh, learning to be more of a collaborative endeavor. And one of their concerns, which I think is a concern that most most teachers have noticed, were that if it's not just that somehow in the abstract transmitting and receiving information is not the ultimate part of learning. It's also boring, ultimately. So I don't know how, if it's happened to you, it used to happen to me when I taught normal classes, at normal universities, you know, you ask a question and the whole room comes alive. And you say, well, actually, you know, the answer is blah. And the whole room just dies becomes like a cemetery. <laughs> so, so there's, there's a, a natural, spontaneous human urge to learn, and it's it's got to be left some leeway uh, for it to keep its energy. So so that's we we teach outside of ex- expertise. Uh, so I I'm you know I'm not an expert on Galileo actually. I uh, haven't read it for a long time, and I learn from my colleagues uh, basic things I need to know about it, and uh, I learn the rest from my students most often. Um, but so it has sort of some shortcomings. That is, you don't necessarily get the right answers about everything because your, your teachers are not necessarily experts. But on the other hand, you get this collaborative, spontaneous kind of conversation and you, you learn that activity of reading and thinking and talking to one another in a way that with a kind of intensity and a, and a, and a kind of excellence that you wouldn't other places. So it's... Um, that's 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 why they call me a tutor. They call me a tutor because I, I teach outside my field. Uh, I I learn on a somewhat more advanced but more equal footing uh, with my students than other professors do. Uh, so that's that's the idea. Well, I, I love what you say about what we would call what would sometimes you call it viewpoint diversity. This idea that you want to hear all the different views in college. Don't want to just hear people from the left say or from the right. Although in American colleges, it seems that there's more of a problem with the first than the second. But either one, a, a serious person who venerates learning would say, yeah, you don't want to just hear one side. But you say something, I think, much more, um, much deeper. You say, in reaction to the widespread ideological narrowing of education, old school, small L liberals promote viewpoint diversity, the civil exchange of differing opinions. Even this school celebrates the same false god as the others, opinionating, the holding of a viewpoint. Forming an opinion has as little to do with inquiry as correctness has to do with knowledge of truth. Talk about that. Well, uh, why don't I talk about some examples? I, the, one of the things that happens on our college campuses these days is – um, extremely difficult, controversial questions get broached in a way that uh, makes everyone miserable. So say you're talking about a hot-button contemporary issue having to do with race or having to do with gender or having to do with any of the things which, which get people's blood boiling. Um, if you try to talk about that as a, an exchange of opinions – Okay, well, like I have my anti-racist opinion, and you've got your racist opinion, and let's just air them both. Okay, that's not going to work. What you're going to have is a disaster. Um, and 
what you, uh, it's not always a disaster. It can be something superficial. I mean, I remember it's a kind of natural impulse when you're teaching philosophy, especially ethics, to, to take polls of the class. You know, you're like, so how many of you right now are a utilitarian? You know, how many of you right now are a Kantian? You know, how many of you would, would switch the trolley onto that track and how many onto that track? Now, that's not going to turn your um, classroom into a war zone, but it's, it's pretty pointless when you think about it. It's, it's th the point of learning is not to come to a settled opinion unless you've got to for some practical reason. The point of learning is to go down a path of inquiry that's going to take you somewhere that you don't know where it is yet. And maybe you'll get to an opinion and then maybe uh, you'll realize that's the wrong one and you'll move on past that. So you, what you really want is inquiry. You want free inquiry more than you want the free exchange of opinions. In my experience in my classrooms, we sometimes get onto t very touchy issues. You know, because great books, they're full of slavery, they're full of misogyny, they're full of all kinds of things which are very difficult to talk about. And in my experience, the conversations go badly and people's feelings get hurt when it's opinionating. But if you can get to the fundamental questions underneath that, if you can get into something deep, something human, that's a little removed from the current climate, but close enough that you're learning about it from a distance, then everyone, everyone loves it. You know, people from all different points of view, people who are religious, people who are not religious, people who are conservative, people who are liberal, they're all happy in that space where they're thinking about something and seeing where it goes and it's related to something that's really sensitive, but you're at enough distance to learn about it without, without hitting it right in the head. That's the kind of thing I think, it's, it's not easy and it's not easily replicable. I don't have a formula for you uh, to how to do that, but I've seen it happen and I, I, to the point where I think, you know, this, this idea of just airing all opinions is, is not the right one. We need, to, we need to be thinking about learning, learning seriously. I think for me, the distinction you make it as well in the book is between debate and conversation. Um, I, I, I spent a lot of my youth debating people. Um, and you say the following. I think this is very deep. Maybe my favorite passage in the book. And there, I had many. It's a, it's a very thought-provoking book. You say, when we debate a given topic, we devise yet more effective rationalizations for what we already believe. A debate rarely spurs an earnest launch into the depths of things, not at any rate with the effectiveness of a good book, a fundamental human question, or an intense and open-ended conversation. And, you know, what I try to do here on EconTalk is just to converse with my guests, even the ones I don't agree with, you and I, I think, agree a lot. But if we're talking about something, say, economic theory or philosophical or ideology, often, you know, people debate those things. And, yes, it's nice that each side gets to talk. But that's not learning. That's often grandstanding or preening or war. And the idea of a conversation is to explore. And, and the goal isn't to come to, quote, the right answer, because most of these questions don't have right answers. They're to help you think about how you think about them, if, if nothing else. I think that's right. And I think that it's that the danger of rationalization means that debate or what I'm calling opinionization, opinion-focused thinking, it can actually operate against learning because you, you end up just gathering whatever you can to win 
the battle, to win the argument. And the higher the, the pitch, the higher the emotional intensity of the fight, the more you're going to want to do that. Uh, so you end up just entrenching yourself uh, into a particular point of view and only able to see the things that support it and not able to see the things that don't. And that's a situation where uh, intellectual or personal growth becomes very difficult. Um, and that's not, uh, again, I'm not um, launching personal attacks on people. This is just something human, something I fall into and everyone else falls into. Yeah. But we do need... Um, educators especially need to find ways to get past that and help people find their way into something that's deep and where there's common ground and where there's growth and real learning and and not just uh yeah opinions treated as if they're they're ends in themselves they're only ends in themselves for politicians right i mean you want to get you know a vote a vote in the voting booth well that's that's an end for a politician but you don't want to you don't want to use your mind for the sake of a a political party or a politician, you want your mind to be free. You want your mind to go where it needs to go. Um, You're very critical of, of the idea of using education as a form of political activism. And many people would disagree with you and say, look, we have to do that. We ha- For social justice, we have to use the university to create a better world. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I um, I do want to say that I think it 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 does happen on both sides. So it, there are now more and more um, conservative attempts to to influence universities to counter what they see as the social yeah. justice movements. So um, and they, they say the same thing, right? Well, we've got to do this, you know, otherwise we lose. Um, and I. I I think that social justice is important. Uh, I think that politics is important. I just don't think it's the same thing as uh, the kind of learning that needs to be cultivated in a university. I think a university traditionally as a nonprofit institution, as an institution that's a bit set apart from the rest of the rest of the community, it's, it should have activities reserved to it that are not, that don't happen automatically, that don't happen in other, in other spheres. So politics or making money, these are things which get, getting power and money is not something that's tough for human beings to be interested in. It's kind of goes on autopilot. So there's, there's no need to pour public resources, taxpayer money and philanthropy into these institutions to do that. It's going to happen on its own. What we need to do is to pour money into stuff that is hard for us, namely this very thing we've been talking about the whole time, this disciplined, focused attempt to connect with one another and to ask ourselves the deepest questions and to learn and to develop and to think and to understand. That's, that's what's difficult. That's what needs all the, all the resources that get poured into universities. But. So we're losing this intellectual debate uh, badly. We're standing against that tide, as, as I mentioned earlier. And you've written a book, which, which I applaud, and we're having a conversation, which I you know, think is important. Um, is that genie getting back in the bottle, that, that idea, this romantic idea that you have, which I share, but we're kind of alone on uh, what a university should be, could be, and what it has become instead? Is there any, do you see a path toward reclaiming that? Well, the path might not be through the institutions anymore. So, so I, I, I sometimes think, uh, that the institutions of higher education have become too ossified, too too rigid. 
it's extremely difficult to see how to reform them in the direction I'm thinking about. So it might well be that what has to happen is we need something like we see in the, the historical periods I'm interested in, uh, grassroots organizations, community organizations. Um, these are human goods. They, they, they're what the institutions are meant to support. And uh, it'd be great if they would support that. It's great when they do. But if they won't, then we have to find another way to support them. And that, that, that may not be easy, but it's also not... You know, we 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 tend to imagine that we're the helpless victims of what's whatever's going on in history, but we're not. I mean, we you know, uh, especially it's part of our you know p- pioneer spirit in the U.S. Right, is to to try to build things, uh, and I, I I think we can do that. And I think honestly, maybe I'm just deluding myself, and maybe I just get again the emails from my own bubble from people who agree with me. But it wouldn't surprise me if we were entering a moment where. Uh, something like this change was possible. How big it will be, I couldn't tell you. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. Is I'm you know that that thinking like this is going to change the world. I don't know if it will or not. But of course, we don't. It, it, what's really necessary, as far as I'm concerned, is that it survive. Uh, does it need to flourish like it did in the 1940s in the mid-century of the U.S.? Uh, maybe it won't again. Maybe that was a special time. But um, can it can it flourish more than it is now? I mean, sure it can. Of course it can. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm uh, cautiously optimistic, uh, uh, while while being aware that uh, <laughs> through as we've been saying, being aware that um, you know plans plans don't survive contact with the battlefield. So we'll see we'll see we'll see what happens. My guest today has been Zena Hits. Her book is Lost in Thought. Zena, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much. It's been great. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.